if you've got your Bible, open it if you would um, to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We are going to go from verse 33 to verse 41. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the power that is contained in this, the culmination of the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ soon to be the resurrection. God, we ask today that you would bring home to our hearts through the Holy Spirit what we need to hear. God, help me to speak and to say what needs to be said. Lord, anoint this message by your Spirit. We thank you for it today. In the name of Jesus, amen. We are at the apex. We are at the pinnacle of where this gospel story has been going. This is the reason that Jesus was born. The reason he came was to die on the cross. And I want us to dive into this and pick up where we left off last week, which was Jesus on the cross, being mocked, being the wagging of the head or the SMH as we described last week, last week, the shaking uh, of the heads, saying, you said you would tear down this temple and rebuild it. Why don't you come down off the cross? They're mocking him. In fact, last week, we really looked at the mockery that Jesus endured from people who were thrilled to see him on the cross. And so this week... We get into the moment of his death. Look at verse 33. I want to go through these verses somewhat slow. What I really want to accomplish this morning is to describe for us what it means that Jesus died on the cross. This section of scripture describes him dying on the cross, but what does it mean? You could argue that the rest of the New Testament 
the epistles are the description of what it means for us that Jesus died. We're reading here the description of those events. Look at verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, so the the sixth hour is noon, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, from noon until three, it got dark. Now, everybody is familiar with the phrase high noon, which is when the sun is straight up in the sky. Noon is not dark. Noon is the opposite of dark. And so it is important to note that in the light part of the day, it gets dark. If you had been there, you might have, and I think the centurion illustrates that he might have been looking out of the corner of your eye at everybody else. There is a story when we were, uh, this has been 25 years ago, and we were doing a VBS at my home church. And during this VBS, the whole point of the VBS was going through the uh, tabernacle and they were building out of cardboard an Ark of the Covenant. Everybody remembers Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, or, or Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, so they were building an Ark of the Covenant and uh, out of cardboard, and it was a bright, sunshiny day, and out of nowhere, a dark storm cloud. It was summer, and this happens, but this dark storm cloud came and settled right over top the church, and one of the kids that was working on it, he's working on the Ark of the Covenant. He looks up, and there's you can see it was weird. You could see the sun all the way around, but right over the head of the church was this dark cloud. And he goes, should we be making this? <laughs> so, and, and that's a funny, I mean, that really happened. That was It was really funny. But if you were there on Golgotha, on the the place of the skull, the hill, looking and seeing the three up there being crucified, the two thieves, or as we said last week, maybe insurrectionists, that in the middle is the one that has a sign over the cross that says, King of the Jews. And now it's dark at noon. You might have been like Chris was at that BBS saying, Should we be doing this? But the scripture indicates that they continued to mock. In fact, something else that I wanted to point out is the ninth plague during uh, Moses pulling the people out of Egypt. The ninth plague was darkness. In fact, uh, Exodus 10.21 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. It was a thick darkness. And it was right before the Passover. It's just interesting. There's a parallel there. That right before the the first Passover with Moses and the Egyptian uh, slavery and, and God redeeming his people out of Israel, one of the last plagues was darkness. And here, before the most important Passover, darkness covers the land. Verse 34, And at the ninth hour, so now we're at 3 p.m., Jesus cried 
with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting Psalm 22. And I told everybody to read Psalm 22. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you did. But if you did, you'll find the very first verse of Psalm 22. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Direct quote that Jesus does on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. When David writes that and says, why have you forsaken me? There's something really important for you to notice. He's still saying, my God. He hasn't abandoned belief in God. He hasn't abandoned trust in God. He is saying, why have you forsaken me and left me out here alone? And I wanted to read all the way through uh, verse 3 of Psalm 22 because he still says, yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. One of, one of the things you should notice in the book of Psalms is that David and all the sons of Korah and all the different writers of Psalms were not afraid to express how they felt as long as it was couched inside of faith and trust. So you can be a person who says, God, where are you? As long as you are also saying, nevertheless, I will trust you. Do you see what I'm saying? Because sometimes people advocate you can be mad at God. And I think that's a dangerous way to look at it. I think instead you should say, if you're angry with God, confess it as wrong and ask him for help. You see the difference? I don't think you should ever pretend that you feel one way when you don't. But at the same time, when we approach God, we should be saying, Lord, I still trust in you, even though I feel forsaken. Now, Jesus, in the most unique moment in history, never to be duplicated, can't be duplicated, can't be replicated. When Jesus says it, it kind of creates a question. We're talking about God the Son incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, saying from the cross, in his anguish on the cross, he's saying, why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus is not condemning God the Father. Jesus is not being unfaithful in the same way that David wasn't unfaithful. In fact, that's one of the reasons I wanted you to read Psalm 22 is to see that Jesus knew the entirety of that psalm. That psalm ends on a note of praise. But it does cause me to say, and should cause all of us to say, what's going on here? What would cause Jesus to say it? Now you can see that uh, some of the bystanders, whatever they heard, verse 35, they're hearing that he's calling for Elijah. There was actually a, a bit of a Jewish thought back then because Elijah was like a superhero prophet to a lot of uh, the Israelites, and they were thinking that Elijah would come and rescue, almost like in Catholicism you have 
an understanding of saints and uh, praying the saints, and you have the saint of whatever that's supposed to protect whatever. You, any Catholic, former Catholics know what I'm talking about. But you have these little special patron saints, um, which I don't think is a biblical thing. And there were some Jews here that had a similar mindset, thinking he's calling and asking for Elijah to help. Because remember, they're all mocking him and saying, why don't you ask God to save you and come down from the cross if you are who you say you are? And for in this moment, when they hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, would, this moment is the moment. It is a big deal. And I want to talk about what I believe the Scripture is teaching us and telling us is happening. What, what the Scripture is telling us is that Jesus, in this moment, has experienced the Father turning His back on the Son as He takes the sin of the world on Himself. Jesus, in this moment, begins to experience not just God turning His face away from sin, which is what He does. Isaiah 59 says that our sin separates us from God. Jesus is experiencing the wrath of God. And I want to talk about that quite a bit this morning. Because this is the essence of why you are saved. is because this is the act of salvation for us. It is really hard to wrap our head around the idea that Jesus experiences separation from God. Not separation in his deity, that he ceased to be the second person of the Godhead Trinity. No, that is not what happened. But in his humanity, as a man here, fully God and fully man, in that humanity, he now experiences separation from God as God turns his back and the wrath of God is visited on the Son on the cross for me. And that Maybe something you've heard before, but I want us to understand what was happening. Jesus is now my substitute on the cross. All of us have had a substitute teacher, right? It's not the actual teacher. It's a substitute teacher standing in the place of the real teacher. Jesus is not a sinner, he is a substitute sinner, not an actual sinner, a substitute standing in the place of the real sinner, which is me, which is you. And as he stands in your place, not a sinner, but as if he were a sinner. And God imputes to him the sin of the world. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when we said, that Jesus was in agony and saying, if this cup can pass from me, please let it pass from me. That is not Jesus afraid of the nails in his hands. There are many martyrs who have gladly went to their death. This is not Jesus being afraid of the whip or afraid of Rome. This is Jesus knowing he is going to experience the substitutionary wrath 
of God. The wrath of God for our sin. Which we're going to explain that in detail. He's our substitute. Think of it this way. There is, and some people have worded it this way throughout church history, at the cross is the great exchange. Jesus exchanges his righteousness for your sin so that you can exchange your sin for his righteousness. You come beggarly in rags, like the prodigal son coming home in rags. And as Rob talked about so beautifully several weeks ago, God puts a robe of righteousness right around that. God gives you that righteousness not because you earned it. Jesus earned it at the cross on our behalf. There isn't better news than what I'm saying. There is no better news in the world throughout all of history and throughout all of eternity than to say the Son of God took your filthy, sinful rags on Himself so that the Father could punish Him on the cross for your sake. That is incredible. It is staggering. It is why no other religion even remotely compares. Don't let somebody tell you that Islam or Buddha or any of the secular religions or anything that's popular, that they even remotely compare to what's being described here. They're not even close. We have a Savior who is God in the flesh who said, I will stand in your place on your behalf. And in this moment, in verse 33, it happens. The wrath of God visits the Son for your sin. He was forsaken. You are accepted. To help us understand this, I want you to go to Isaiah 53. I know I've referenced it a lot, but it's one of the best chapters in the Bible in reference to understanding what Jesus did. And the beauty of it is it's written hundreds of years prior to Jesus' birth. I'm going to start reading with verse 4. I'm going to go to verse 11. I want you to pay attention to the words you're going to hear. Born, carried, and the word for. When you do something for somebody else, everybody knows what we're talking about. You're doing something on their behalf. This is a description of Christ. Surely, verse 4, He has borne our griefs or illnesses and carried our sorrows or diseases, yet we esteemed Him stricken. We viewed Him as stricken. Smitten by God. Smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions or sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, also sins. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Those stripes are a reference to the whipping that he received when Pontius Pilate had him flogged. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to think again what we're saying. He has borne, he has carried, and it's being laid on him. Sicknesses, diseases, the lack of peace, sin, sin laid on him. All that is wrong with the fall of Adam. Everything that's wrong, it is laid on Christ. All consequences, all sin, all wrong, and it's being put there by the Father. This is the cup that he has to drink. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Remember, he would not answer the questions presented to him when he was being questioned by Pilate. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus had never sinned. And verse 10 really brings it home. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Father, has put him, the Son, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days that the will of the Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. These looking forward to a people of God that belong to him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Isaiah 53 is telling us that when Jesus was in our place on the cross, he was bearing, he was carrying, it was laid on him, all of what is wrong. All of it. Jesus bore on the cross. Paul explains a little bit more in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. One of the reasons the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus crucified is so they could invoke the, the law that says anybody on a tree is cursed, cursed by God. So he can't be the Messiah. That was part of the reasoning that they had. Because the law says it and Paul quotes it. And he actually says this is on purpose. God did this on purpose because he was cursed for you. With your sin. So that, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise spirit through faith. Yes, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus was cursed by hanging on this tree. He was cursed with all the sin of the world, which is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, 
and it is impossible to fathom. And I have a feeling we will sing songs in heaven throughout all eternity about this moment. As we look back and try to comprehend what God did on the cross. Unbelievable. Peter says that angels desire to look in to your salvation. Have you ever read that? Angels want to know and look at what God did. Angels are not redeemed. You have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of God bought you. That is staggering. Truly. It's incredible. Being a Christian is not deciding to come to church and be nice and heavy traffic. That's not what being a Christian is. I'm super nice and I don't say cuss words. I'm a Christian. That is so anemic. What, what we are, are we are blood-bought, redeemed people that belong to the king. Ambassadors now for the king. This is a message you need in your soul. You need to come back to it again and again and again and again. And when you're depressed, when you're anxious, when you're frustrated, with your, when you're angry, you come back to this message and say, I've been bought by the blood of the Lamb that was slain for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, for our sake, He made Him, God the Father made Him the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says in Philippians, I, I crave and want a righteousness, but not a righteousness of my own that comes through works, but a righteousness that comes through faith. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Righteousness, what's that word? That sounds like a church word, right? What does righteousness mean? It, it means the quality of being right. But in terms of God, righteousness means the standard of what is right. And guess how many of you hit the standard? None of you. We can't because the standard is perfect. It's totally unfair. You can't get there. It's totally outside of your reach. There's nothing you can do. You can, this, and this is hard. What I'm going to say is hard. You just can't be good enough. Think of the best person you know. They're not good enough. They can not earn God's favor. Well, he's such a good guy. He's so nice. He doesn't hurt anybody. If that person doesn't make it to heaven, do you see how we think? We can't help it. We're conditioned to think that we can earn or do or prove something to God. And these verses are telling me your sin was so complete, it took an act of God on your behalf to save you. But that is also the greatest news that has ever been preached. Because if it took an act of God to save you, when you are saved, you are saved by God. You're not saved by you. You don't save yourself. He saves you. And gives you a righteousness that you cannot earn or produce. 
want to have you go one more place. Romans chapter 3. Romans is dangerous to go to because it just feels like there's not enough time to explain it all. I think after Mark, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and then we're going to go to Romans. So you can just be praying for me. I want you, we're going to read some very famous verses here, but the context of these famous verses are going to help us understand the moment when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about righteousness. We're talking about a standard that you and I can't meet, but it's God's standard. And we're finding out that this righteousness of God came apart from the law, but the law talks about it. The law and the prophets point to it. The law, all of the Old Testament is pointing a finger saying, there's a righteousness you must have. And the Jewish nation has been trying for hundreds, thousands of years to get to that righteousness by keeping every little thing just right, and they can't do it. And every single year they've got to kill more animals, kill more animals to make sure that it covers all of their sins and their mistakes and they can't even do those right. Isaiah tells us God looks at their sacrifices like a broken dog's neck because their hearts are far from Him. They couldn't get it right. Nobody could get it right. And that was exactly why God did what He did. To put it in a nutshell, if you want to understand why God made it, Seemingly so incredibly difficult, he was calling a people to himself, separating them from the rest of the nations, and then proving through this nation that he had called his own people that they couldn't do what he told them to do. They couldn't do it! But Jesus did. Okay. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you knew that one? We knew that verse, right? For all have sinned. You notice that's in the middle of a sentence? There's, there's more words all around that famous verse. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. What does justified mean? An easy way to remember it is just as if I'd never sinned. That's a very old and very classic definition. Just as if I'd never sinned. But what it really means is if righteousness is an uh, an adjective, then justified would be the adverb. It's the description of being made right. I have been justified. I have been made right with God. And I, that has happened by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 
is telling me why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation means, that's, it's a word you don't hear very often, it means that the wrath of God is satisfied. Why am I spending so much time on this? Because you need to understand that what God did for us was meet every requirement of God's perfection because He knew you couldn't do it. When the Scripture says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, it's saying that God offered him up, put him forward as propitiation, as the satisfaction for the wrath of God. All of the punishment meant for us was put on Christ on the cross. It is glorious, triumphant, beautiful, wonderful news. It's to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to spend three hours on that. But God is just. He must punish sin. And God is a justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The way he solved the problem of the sin of the world is to send Jesus Christ as a substitute. Perfect, sinless, on the cross. Experiences the punishment for that sin. That makes God just. Because God has dealt with sin. When you come to Christ, what is happening is God is taking the justice he poured out on the cross in his wrath and he's saying, I will now apply that to you. Because it already happened to Jesus, so I'm giving you his righteousness. I've already done what needed to be done for sin. I'm going to apply to you the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in Christ because Jesus has already satisfied all of the requirements. All, all of God's punishment for sin is satisfied in Jesus. So when you say he died for our sin, that is what we are actually saying. Okay. Let's go back to Mark. I lost my spot. We mentioned verse 36. Last week, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. When they heard him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They put it on a reed, gave him this to drink. That wasn't them trying to be rude. Actually, you find out in the first century, sour wine and water actually quenched thirst better. I've not tried it to prove it if it's true, but that's the way they thought about it back then. I'll just take the word of the commentary for that because I don't want to try it. But that it was... They hear him crying out. They're giving him something to drink. And then people are still saying, 
wait, let us see whether Elijah will come take him down. So even though it's dark, from their physical eyes and their perspective, what they see is this guy that preached so boldly in the temple this past week, they're seeing him crucified. This is not the leader we were looking for. Verse 37. Mark just gives a very simple description. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. But that is significant because most people on the cross, though they ranted and raved as they were dying, by the end were exhausted. Because if you're on the cross and pulling yourself up trying to breathe and you've been beaten and the loss of blood, in fact, Jesus dies relatively quickly in comparison to other people. One of the prophecies in the Old Testament in the psalm about, about Jesus is his bones would not be broken. And that's significant because some of the Roman soldiers carried a club to break the legs of the person on the cross. And the reason they did that was to speed up the death. I mean, it's a horrifying thought. But if it was going too long and the guy wouldn't die... They break his legs and he can't get his... Because you start suffocating because you're collapsing in on your lungs. It's, it's a horrific way to die. They did not do that to Jesus. Jesus instead utters a loud cry and breathed his last. It sounds like he's filled still with strength, not languishing at the end. And in that moment, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now I want you to picture this. The, in the temple, Jesus is outside the city on the hill of Golgotha and just maybe a mile away from him inside of the city walls in the temple is this blue and purple curtain. And it's thick and it's this beautiful tapestry that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And only the priest could go through there. And when Jesus cries out with that loud voice, and we know from the other gospel accounts, he says, In the, into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. When he does that and it's torn, it's torn from top to bottom like somebody tearing paper. That should have been a sign and it was a sign. Mark records it, lets us know. Many people believe that it is, could mean any number of things. I think it definitely means you have rejected the Messiah. There's judgment coming, and we know that happens in AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. But it also, I believe, means that it is finished. Jesus has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. There is no longer going to be a separation and a curtain between the holy of holies and my people. Hebrews tells us that let us come boldly into the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. And it also says in chapter 10 that Jesus made a way through his blood for us to come into God's presence. So now there is complete access for you as a Christian not because you're good, but because Jesus on the cross paved a road with his own blood for you to have access.
to God the Father. It's wonderful. Verse 39. And that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. In this way, this loud proclamation, this cry, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. I have always loved this centurion since I was a kid and I would hear the story of the centurion who was in charge of the death squad that was watching over the crucifixion that something in this process, the darkened sky, watching Jesus' demeanor, the way he cries out and prays, and the way he dies, he is convinced this man was the Son of God. I like to believe he goes on to become a Christian. Many, many, many Roman centurions did. And then something really interesting that, that ends all of this. Verse 40. And 41, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary, Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. It seems like an odd place to put that in there. But it's not odd. One of the unique things about Christianity, especially in the first century, is that God was making it clear that there is no Jew or Gentile in Christ Jesus. There's neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. You are in equal footing before God, male or female. And so women are given this prominent place at the crucifixion of Jesus to say there were faithful followers of Jesus that were ladies. I want to mention them here. And it's just important to note. Now, this is not me preaching a modern feminist message at all. I think modern feminism is a scourge, and it's awful, and it totally demeans what God means for a woman to be, and it demeans what God means for a man to be. God made men, and He made women, and He made us different. And the modern conception of gender is a train wreck if there ever was one. Ten times worse than the train wreck in East Palestine, Ohio. It is a massive disaster what we are doing with gender. But that doesn't change the fact that God clearly wants and understood there are faithful ladies following the king. They were there at the cross. And they were there during his ministry at Galilee. You need to be aware of that. This would have been a more radical concept in the first century. Now, from our perspective in the 21st century, we've made a pig's breakfast of gender. So that's not the sermon. But I just wanted you to see, God, God intended that to be there. He wants women to know they are valued in Christ. He singles it out so that it's made prominent and made understood. So ladies, you are never less than a man in your service to the King of Kings. You're never less. In fact, the role of man and wife, husband and wife, we believe that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That doesn't mean that you're less than the man. It just means he's the one responsible 
different roles does not mean inequality. Before God, men and women are equal. But then he has, in that equality, he has different roles. Okay, we'll talk about that some other time in more detail. But it's just important to note that Mark rounds it out by letting us know, ladies, you are important. These are the women that followed Jesus. And they were there. Including his mom. But this is not where the story ends. We have a resurrection that's coming. I want to take time to go over the redemption that we have in Christ this morning. And I don't I want you to go away maybe with a commitment to go back into Romans 3 and go back into Galatians 3 and and look at some of these verses that tell us that Jesus in that moment experiencing the wrath of God on our behalf made it possible for you to be redeemed and robed in righteousness that you couldn't earn. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand up. We're going to receive communion. So if you do not have the elements, you can go into the out into the foyer to get those. thought it would be fitting to do communion at the end of the service because we spent time talking about what Jesus did. Jesus told the disciples, he said, this is, this is my body which is broken for you and this is the blood of the new covenant. So he told them, but what we just read this morning was the act in the moment in which he did what he said he would do. I'm just going to ask everybody to bow your head with me if you would. If you've committed sins this week, and you have, sins that you did and the sins of things you did not do, all of us have done it. The reason we have this meal, one of the blessed reasons is a constant weekly reminder that Jesus died for my sin. And so what I want you to do this morning is just say, Lord, forgive me for the sins I've committed. I trust in your grace. You are just and the justifier of those who have faith in you. And I have faith in you and what you did. I thank you for that forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for it. And your word says that all of us that confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us. So Lord, we rejoice and that forgiveness this morning. Lord, we take this, trusting in you, loving you, and proclaiming your death until you come. Let's take this together.
And Lord, as we go this morning, as we go into this week, we know you'll be with us. Help us live in the knowledge of the saving work of Christ. Lord, let Jesus be glorified in our life this week, all around us. Pour out your spirit, Lord, on this church and on these people. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed. Be blessed as you go.